Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. This is John Simon. And we're here today with Joan Lockwood of Gray, Ritter & Graham and Rich Finneran of Brian Cave, Leighton & Peisner. Welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right. This is part two of our conversation regarding our appellate law roundtable. Let's just jump right into oral argument. I've heard from many judges who will say that by the time you get to oral argument, it's probably not going to change their outlook on the case, but there's a chance it might. Joan, what are your thoughts on techniques for preparation and how to make it effective? Well, I think oral argument is one of the more fun aspects of handling an appeal, and it's exciting to get ready for, and it's certainly exciting to do. Preparation for oral argument is key. You know, I generally kind of plan out my opening and my closing, which consists of a couple, three sentences, have those memorized, and then I'll have a page that contains my points that I hope to cover or want to cover. But I generally pick one or two key points to address that I want the court to focus on. But my big advice to people is let the court direct what gets focused on. My hope is always that that court is a hot court asking a lot of questions so that they can then guide the course of your argument. And you've got to be prepared to do that. And so all of that goes back to what you do to prepare for oral argument. Know the facts inside out, know the record inside out, know the case law inside out, and hope that court asks you questions so that you can go down its path and know what's important to the court to determine the outcome of your case. How much information do you bring to the podium? I bring one page of notes. If I'm arguing a statute, I bring the statute with me. I don't like to have a lot of stuff up there with me, but at counsel table, I'm going to have kind of that important piece of the transcript that shows that the error was preserved and it's going to be tabbed so that if I need to grab it, I can. I usually do have kind of like a timeline or a cheat sheet of pages in the transcript with me in case I get a question about that, but I don't like to have a lot of stuff up there with me. Do you think about your persona up there, whether you need to be extra energized or dramatic or anything, or are you just you? I think you need to be confident. I think your tone is important. And I think that confident comes from preparation. You want to remain in control. You want logic, not emotion to run the appellate process. You want to be professional at all times as we do when we try a case, when we write a brief, when we argue a case. Everything that you say and do must speak about the case, not you. <laughs> you know, So you're not the case. You're just arguing the case. So you're not the case. You're not the message. You've got to be transparent when you're arguing because everything that you say and do has to speak not about you, but rather about the case. And so the goals are to go from one of knowledge to understanding, from one of speaking to teaching in my mind, and to one of being kind of rigid preparation to being more flexible and responsive to the court and the court's questions. Rich, could you tell us about your preparation strategies? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to agree with a lot of what Joan just said there. I think that preparation is incredibly important, but I think that often people who don't have experience in oral argument go into it with the wrong mindset. And as a result of that, they don't prepare in the right way. I think that really what you're trying to do if you're going to be effective as an appellate advocate is you're trying to create a conversation 
with the panelists. You're not really up there to argue. We call it an oral argument, but you have an argument with your opponent. You want to have a conversation with the judges. And like Joan said, trying to take on that almost teacher-like role to help them understand. I will sometimes, as I'm training lawyers and students, I'll say, think of yourself like a guide. You traveled the path. You know how to get from the premises and the law and the facts in your case to the conclusion that there was or was not an error that merits reversal. And you don't want to necessarily be pounding the podium talking about how unjust something was. Instead, you want to be gently explaining to the judges, here's why this case has to be reversed, or this is why this case has to be affirmed in that sort of guide-like persona. And while I think that you generally want to leave the emotion out of it, I do think there's a place at the end of your argument to try to bring in a little bit of the stakes of the case and talk about why it's not just legally correct that you win your case, but why the court should be motivated to push a result in your favor. And that's in part because, you know, in a lot of these cases, the court has got the option of giving deference to the district court on some of these issues. They're obviously hesitant to overturn the judgment of one of their colleagues if it can be defended. And showing the court that there's a real, you know, something that has to be corrected here, it's not just some technical issue. I think there is a place for that at the end of the argument as you're sort of wrapping your remarks up. But I agree totally with Joan that if you walk to the podium with some big binder or giant outline you think you're going to get through, you've taken the exact wrong approach to your preparation. The way to prepare for oral argument is to simulate oral argument, whether it's sitting at a desk or whatever, actually get your mouth moving talking about the issues in the case and distill it down to the thing that is most important, that if the judges have a conversation with you about this particular point in your argument, they're going to be convinced and you're going to win your case. And that's really what should be driving towards an oral argument, not a, a recitation of the points of your brief, not a summary of your points in your brief. That's not why they granted oral argument. If they granted you oral argument, it's because the judges have some questions and you want to get them thinking about the case in a way that's going to dictate a result in your favor. And, and that's how you do it. Right. And being able to steer that conversation that is so important to create with the panel by smoothly transitioning between a question and going back to your argument is kind of an art, but it's such an important one. It creates kind of a convincing mannerism. And, and I think that confidence is so important for advocacy. I also think one thing Rich mentioned is, you know, where possible weaving into your argument, the idea that you're not only correct on the law, but you're seeking a just result. You know, you're going to be focused on your legal analysis, but I think the panel, the judges are attuned to fairness considerations. They can be persuaded by those in a close case. And so weaving those into your argument is important. Well, and I want to go back to something Joan just said to put some emphasis on it, because that is, I think, maybe the biggest thing that people don't understand about oral argument is when they get a question, they think of it as an interruption to their flow, the things that they came to the podium wanting to say. There's a famous Law Review article, it's, it's nice and short, your listeners can read it, by Justice Robert Jackson called Advocacy Before the Supreme Court of the United States, that I think was published, I think, back in 1951 or something like that in the Cornell Law Review. But he famously said there, you know, that a question is an opportunity or an invitation to persuade. And that's really how you have to view a question from the panel. And if you simply answer the question and then go back to some prefabricated outline you had, you're missing your opportunity. What you instead want to do is recognize that every time you answer a question, you're doing two things. You're very obviously responding to the concern the judge had in asking the question. That's what everybody does. But what you're also doing that you may not realize is you're actually stating a premise in your argument that is why you win. And so the first thing you should say after you answer a question is, and that's important because, or and that's why I win my case. You want to connect it to your ultimate conclusions in the case, 
because that's what's going to ultimately persuade the court, not if you simply go back to what you were talking about before the question came in. And so few, I mean, having watched a lot of oral arguments, having done a lot of moot courts with my students, that is probably the most overlooked thing that even experienced advocates do is they don't use the answers to the questions as Joan just suggested to connect back to their broader points and really engage the panel in that kind of conversation that makes for an effective oral argument. Yeah, don't let the questions frustrate or distract you. Let those questions that the judge asks lead you because that's what they want to learn about. That's what they want to hear about. I argued a case in the Missouri Supreme Court, and I had it prepared kind of more as a constitutional argument. And I did that in part because of the other cases that were on the court's docket. So oftentimes in the Missouri Supreme Court, they'll docket cases with similar topics. And based on what else was on the docket, I thought, okay, they're looking at this as a constitutional issue. Well, they weren't at all. It was a statutory construction issue. And I had the statute with me, of course, at the podium, and I was prepared to argue the statutory construction, but we didn't argue one ounce of constitutional law in that argument, although that was going to be the really focus of my argument prior to getting the questions from the judge and then leading me down, okay, this is a statutory construction interpretation case in the court's view. One thing that I think about to prepare is to make sure that I actually show up in terms of not getting rattled up there. It's a thought experiment I have, which is I assume some judge will look right at me and say, I disagree with everything you've said in your brief. And that's actually happened one time with one judge. It was a three-judge panel in Kansas City. And one judge fiercely disagreed with everything I said. The other two were completely silent. I just tried to build it up from the bottom and explain why I got to where I got. She wasn't buying what I was selling. And the other two judges were quiet. The result was bad for me. But I thought that was important for me to be actually still in the game. Have either of you had that where a judge just pointedly tells you, I disagree with the entire appeal or something close to that? Well, you definitely encounter often from an appellate bench deep and vocal skepticism about arguments that you're making. I don't know if I ever had anybody just flat out tell me they disagree with everything that I've said, but they probably could have said that in the way they're asking their questions. The important thing to remember there is, you know, you're not going to gain anything by disagreeing with the panel. If they're disagreeing with you, then you are losing. So what you've got to do is you've instead got to figure out how can I get them back onto my side? How can I explain this in that guide-like way? It's not that they dislike me or dislike my client or even dislike my position. They just don't understand it as fully as I do. And how can I help explain that to them? And so one technique that I teach my students when you're dealing with an adversarial kind of question is what I call feeling the pain, which is when the judge asks you that adversarial question and says, well, isn't this wrong or isn't that, and, and just goes at your point, start by agreeing with whatever you can the judge's question. So if there's some premise he stated that was correct, you can say, Your Honor, that is correct. It's true that the record on this page does say that that is true. But if you look further in the record on page 15, you'll see that there was actually a contradiction in that testimony. And so it's not that you're maliciously wrong, Judge. I'm just pointing out something else to you about how to get to the right answer. And that is often a very effective technique to deal with antagonistic questions from the panel. You know, judges love hearing they're right. And so if you can find things to say they're right about and then bring them back and focus in and narrow the issues onto what really makes you win your case, that's usually the most effective way to deal with a adversarial panel. And I think the other thing that's important is to kind of learn who your panel is. You know, who are these judges that are going to be listening to my argument, that are going to be reading my brief? Do they typically ask a lot of questions? Did they spend, you know, a 
15-year career practicing in the same area of law that we're going to be discussing, or are they somewhat new to this area of the law? Because that can, you know, adjust the way that you argue and the complexity of your argument. You can listen to oral arguments that have been heard by these judges before and see the types of questions that they typically ask. I think that's really important and maybe more so because it gives you, the arguing attorney, a comfort level in knowing, well, this is what the judge will typically ask or they don't typically ask a lot of questions or they ask questions at the beginning. So just stylistically to listen to oral arguments that have been conducted by the same court is important from a comfort level perspective. And then I also think reading opinions that have been previously written and using that as an opportunity to cite to those opinions, or maybe a well-respected member of the court, like who's now retired. Well, when Judge Stith was on the bench, she wrote this opinion and said X. You know, one of our Missouri Supreme Court judges who's well-respected. But you can cite to those, and I think that it's important to base your argument really on who your audience is, just as it is at the trial court level. And for that same reason, Joan, I hope you agree, you should show up at the start of the docket and pay attention. Even if you are down, you know, 10 arguments in on a busy uh, morning in the appellate court, you're going to gain so much valuable information by sitting there, listening to the way that the judges are engaging with other advocates on the issues that they're discussing. You know, don't bring something else to work on and try and, you know, busy yourself while the other arguments are going on. That's valuable information that you can gain by just sitting in the room. Sometimes you can even refer back to something that they asked an advocate in a previous argument. You say, you know, you asked counsel in one of the previous cases this question, the same question could be asked here. Judges love that fact that you're being attentive to the arguments and attentive to their concerns. And it really gives you a lot of more confidence, I think, when you know what you're walking into if you're not first on the docket. No doubt about it. And particularly in Missouri, where they sometimes arrange cases by topic. That's so key because you are sometimes referring to the prior case or referring to counsel in a preceding case's comment or why your case might be different than theirs. So yeah, really important. Plus, they can always change the order of the docket. (laughs) So be there early and stay for the whole thing. Do either of you know, and it may differ depending on if it's the federal court or state court, do the panel, the judges on the panel discuss the issues or discuss the case together before oral argument? In other words, do they know what each of their positions are before oral argument, if you know? At least in the federal court, I know that's not typical. The judges will typically come to court having discussed the issues with their clerks, having read the briefs, and then their first opportunity to discuss the case will come after the oral argument when they go to conference to determine how they're going to vote and to whom they're going to assign the various opinions for the day. One important part about that is that means that sometimes the judges are actually having their first conversation about the case with you in the room. And some of their questions are maybe being directed not as much to you as they are to their colleagues to try to basically prefigure what they're going to be discussing when they get back to conference because they obviously know each other quite well. So being aware of that and recognizing when the judge is throwing you a softball that maybe is actually designed to help persuade one of their colleagues to your position, not to mistake it for an adversarial question and argue against your position. There's nothing that is worse than when you see an advocate get lobbed a helping hand by the judge and then have him squander the opportunity. You can even see the judge's face sometimes turn sour when he's like, well, I tried to help you out, but it didn't quite work. (laughs) So I actually, uh, back a few years ago, I wrote a, a law review article. And as a part of that process, it was all about oral argument and moot court and how to do it effectively. And uh, as a part of that, I did sort of a survey trying to answer the question that you're asking earlier, Eric, about how often does oral argument actually affect the outcome in the cases. And in my survey, I found that some judges had placed the number as low as 5% of cases and the most generous 
estimate that I could find was 31%. A judge actually got the tally one year, said that uh, oral argument changed his mind in 31% of cases. But you got to remember, of course, in the appellate court, you're not just having to convince one judge, you got to convince at least a majority of them. So two, if it's a panel of three, well, that tells you how rare it is that oral argument is going to be decisive. But that doesn't mean it's not important. I mean, in the cases where the court has ordered oral argument, you have an opportunity to potentially persuade them. And I think that generally a, a lot of advocates miss the opportunity because they don't look at the argument in the right kind of way. And if you really do focus the judge's attention on the most important point that helps you win your case, then I think you've got a better chance of a reversal if you're the appellant than you would in most cases if you're effective in terms of your oral argument. I think another really key thing is to really anticipate what questions the court might ask you and do that by, you know, having somebody in your office just read the briefs, right? They're only going to read the briefs, not have a discussion with the trial lawyer about the facts or the outcome. So they're there just as the court is and have them ask you questions, but anticipate what the questions are going to be. You might get a jurisdictional question. You might get a question about how the impact of the court's ruling is going to affect, you know, hypothetical future cases. Be ready for that. Be ready to be able to limit kind of the consequences of them ruling in your favor to your specific facts of the case. When I was in the Seventh Circuit, I argued and Judge Posner was on the panel. And one of the things that he was really focused on was, why was I in federal court? Because the judgment that I obtained was less than $75,000. And so I had to explain to the judge that while in closing argument, I asked for less than $75,000 and was awarded less than $75,000 at the time the case was filed, the evidence was such that the amount exceeded the jurisdictional limit. But the facts kind of changed by the time we tried the case. When the defense attorney got up, the judge was simply focused on, why are you appealing this small of a judgment? You know, what is going on? And, and the defense attorney said, well, the reason that we're appealing is because we feel that the trial court got it wrong, the district court got it wrong, and we don't want to create something precedential with respect to the submissibility of a, it was a slip and fall case. Well, when Judge Posner wrote that opinion, he ended his opinion by saying, now this defendant is precedential value, a Seventh Circuit opinion. So you never really know what the questions are going to be. But I remember heading back from Chicago with that defense attorney, and we both were like, wow, we couldn't have anticipated that, focusing on jurisdiction with me and on why the heck did you appeal this small of a case to the defense attorney? <laughs> One other uh, comment sort of on common mistakes that people make in oral argument. You know, when you get that question from the panel, they are looking for a direct answer to the question. So if it's a yes or no question, your answer should begin with yes or no. And if it's not, it should begin with a headline before you give your explanation. Nothing drives appellate court judges crazier than when you take a big step back. You know, they say, well, counsel, was there any evidence to support this? And you say, well, judge, this was a, you know, six-day trial, and there were a lot of witnesses. And I, there was one witness who, you know, just give him the direct answer first and then go on to explain. That is always the best way to answer a question. The worst thing that can happen is the judge, you give your direct answer, and the judge says, well, why is that true? And lucky for you, that's what you're going to say anyway if you're going on to explain your position. So that's another critically important thing. You've got such limited time in appellate argument. You've got to give those direct answers and then be able, as we were discussing, to connect those answers to your ultimate conclusions and your themes. I've sometimes seen a judge ask an attorney at oral argument a factual question. The attorney doesn't know, and the attorney acts like they're going to just talk about something else instead of saying, I don't know or I don't remember. And I think that's a big mistake. If you don't remember, you say, I'd have to refer back to the record. I don't recall. We mentioned this earlier in our prior podcast. Credibility is critical here. 
you want to let the judges know you're not here being a politician or you know trying to spin things. You're just trying to help process what happened at the trial and get to a fair result. If you don't know a particular page of the transcript that the court is asking for a factual citation on or where something was you know, preserved in the record at the trial court level, it's perfectly acceptable to say, I don't have that citation handy, but I will supplement after oral argument with a letter to the court citing to it. You know, Or if you can't recall a specific case, it's okay to file a motion post-argument it's generally acceptable to address a new case or matter to which you know the court asked a question that you didn't know. Just request leave to file a letter brief or a supplement. Make it short. Make it to the point. Obviously, it's got to be you know filed so that the other side is aware of it. But it's perfectly fine to do that, and I don't think that you lose any credibility with the court, but you rather gain it. And then follow up your confession that you don't remember and that you'll supplement by saying, "But what I do know." And then turn back to some point in your arguments that is going to help you win your case. Don't let that failure of recollection, which we all have, I mean, especially in long, complex cases, we can't be expected to know the page of every, you know, citation in the transcript. But don't let that throw you off your flow. Go back to your main points at that point and say, but what I do know is this, and it did say this at this point in the record, or this case does help my, and just keep moving towards those conclusions that you're trying to get the court to focus on, even if you have a stumble like that. I'd like to turn our attention to brief writing, and I thought this might be fun to discuss our workspaces. Joan, could you tell us about what tools, technology, software, and tell us about your team if you, if you work with others when you write your briefs? Could you tell us about your process? My process is probably considered messy and disorganized. <laughs> I use a separate table in my office to kind of lay out the transcript. I use lots of tabs. I'm more of a paper person than a computer person when it comes to the brief writing, which is kind of a little bit more old school, but that's just how I work best with respect to the record on appeal. I think it's important to devote just really a lot of uninterrupted time to first get through that record and then to second start you know, formulating your arguments and your points. So it's a process that takes really twice as long as we expect it to take when we start. And then the technical aspects of compliance for the brief is something that you can plan on spending really almost a day on. I think it's that important to get your citations uniform, your legal citations and your the way that you're citing to the transcript, just to make sure everything looks good and is in proper form and order. Rich, what's your process? You know, I think similarly, I'm still a bit of a paper person when it comes to the transcript. I like to print it out and, you know, actually flip through the pages and put my tabs on it, that sort of thing. But one thing that I do is once I have gotten through that and I have a sense of what the main issues are, I will often write the summary of the argument and the point headings in the argument first and sort of just see if I can hit a highest level version of why I win my case before I dive in and really start doing the work of filling in the case law and filling in the facts and really trying to understand how I'm going to, you know, more instrumentally make my argument. And I can tell you, I never am actually going to include in my final draft that first draft of my summary of the argument. It's going to change substantially in the course of putting my work together. But I find that by trying to get to that sort of treetop level of discussion about the case at the beginning, it helps me think about how I can frame and structure my arguments in the argument section of the brief so they're digestible, they're understandable, and they ultimately are going to be the same sort of things I'm talking about in oral argument, but really decisive factors in my favor. And then the other big thing I think that I do is I will basically have the point where I've written 
the whole brief. Maybe there's, you know, some pin sites that got to be filled in, that sort of thing. And then I'm going to make sure I go away from it and don't look at it for a good two or three days. And then I'm going to come back to it with a fresher set of eyes. I'll reread it from scratch as though I, you know, hadn't been thinking about the case for the last week straight and try to get that sort of fresher perspective on it myself and as well as ask my colleagues, obviously, to read through it and offer their feedback. I think anybody who's trying to get a brief done at the last minute or who's continually working on it from the time that they turn to it to the time that it's filed is missing an opportunity through editing and revision to turn a much more polished, much more persuasive product. So I, as soon as I get a case that I know I'm going to be doing an appeal on, I'm going to try and get through that transcript as soon as I can. I'm going to take that first pen to paper and put that first draft of the summary together and my point headings together. I'm going to maybe tease out some portions that I feel like I know what I want to say. Then I'm going to spend a lot of time working on it until I am tired of it, and then I'll go away from it and come back to it. And that's, to me, more or less essential to turning in a piece of work that is a real final polished product if you want to be effective. You know, we all fight confirmation bias. We start believing in our arguments, and we want them to work, and then we don't see our blind spots. So that's the only approach I know is to give it time to simmer. It just takes time. Yeah, you really have to be considerate of your audience. Remember that your judges were not there for the trial. They basically don't know anything other than what you point out to them in the brief. And it's very difficult sometimes, even when you just read the trial transcript, which the judges will not have done before they are reading your brief, you know, it's difficult sometimes to put yourself back in their shoes and say, all right, what information are they coming to the table with? And how can I present this in a digestible, understandable, and persuasive way? And if you don't take that step back, you're never going to be able to put yourself in those shoes and the judge is going to read it and they're going to have a lot of questions at oral argument that are more informational questions. Of, well, I don't understand this or that from your brief, as opposed to let's talk about the implications of your theories. Let's talk about what this decision is going to mean for future cases, the kind of things that really you want to be emphasizing your argument, not just informing the judges, but really persuading them. So, you know, there's a big connection, too, between how you do your brief writing and what kind of oral argument you're going to get. And so you've got to be conscious of that as you're putting the brief together as well. You know, the lens through which the court is going to be deciding the merits of the case is, of course, the standard of review. And so you want to incorporate that standard into each issue and articulate how you met it. So, you know, each argument that you have under each point relied on has got to address preservation of the error, the standard of review, and then the issue that's set forth that is there for argument and how it's tied to the case law and the facts but I think that's just key. And to be concise is so, so important. And that's what happens in the drafting process. You're cutting down your words. You're making things more concise and more clear for the reader. Well, and standards of review are so critically important and something that, again, if you're not an experienced appellate practitioner, if you don't understand how to utilize those effectively, uh, you're going to be in big trouble. I mean, if you've got a de novo issue, then great. It's basically like you're arguing it as you would at the trial court. But when you're dealing with an abuse of discretion standard, if you just cite that standard in your brief and then go on to argue as though you're arguing to a trial court, you're not meeting the standard. You've got to explain to the court not just why this was wrong, but why it was so outside the bounds of what an acceptable ruling is that it merits a reversal in your case. And you know what I'll say to my students about how to use an abuse of discretion standard in your favor as an appellant is if you can find a case where the court said that something was an abuse of discretion and then state that as a rule, say it is an abuse of discretion for a court to blank under blank circumstances, well, now you've effectively created a de novo rule that you can ask the court to enforce. But if you don't do that work and recognize the importance of the standard of review, 
then you're going to find yourself sitting there with an opinion at the end of the day that's going to say, well, you know, they make arguments about how the court should have gone this way instead of the other way, but the court has got substantial discretion to make rulings on evidentiary issues like this, and we are not persuaded that this was an abuse of that discretion, so we deny this point. You don't want to be in that position, so you've got to understand those standards and own them. Don't fight against them. Don't ignore them. Own that standard review when you're an appellant and you've got a negative one against you and utilize it effectively in your favor as an advocate. And same thing if you're dealing as an appellant with your opponent making a harmless error argument. Don't assume the burden of showing prejudice. It's their burden to show that the error was harmless. In other words, they've got to prove to the court that there would not have been a different outcome. And don't sit there and say, no, here's how it definitely affected the outcome. Just show that there's a reasonable probability that the outcome might have been different and you've met your burden. So you have to be conscious of these standards, not just think of yourself as a trial lawyer arguing the facts or the law to the judge or the jury. Instead, you've got to be cognizant of those standards because they're so critical in understanding how to make your case effectively on appeal. And circle back to that standard of review at the end of each argument on each of your issues and articulate, you know, again, how you met it and why it mandates the result that you want in the case. Let's talk about how to be conducting efficient, good research. What are your tips? I'm sort of a Westlaw nerd, and I feel like that, especially younger lawyers these days, they're so used to sort of Google, and they think that the way to find cases is to just come up with a list of keywords and then scroll through the massive number of results until they find something that seems like it's on point. And, you know, that's one way to do research, but the thing is that, Either Westlaw or Lexis, you know, actual human beings have spent hours and hours putting headnotes into every single one of these cases that basically catalog the propositions of law that they stand for. And, you know, Westlaw actually, like, I think is sort of hidden this feature because I think it's actually like you pay less when you use it than if you run their normal searches. But there's a feature on Westlaw called Key Numbers where you can literally go through the indexing that is uh, structured by the West Reporter System and find the key numbers that relate to your issues and then create a custom digest based upon jurisdiction, based upon recency of the case, based upon the level of court that you're looking for. And in addition to helping you find cases more quickly that are mandatory authority or on point for your issue, you'll also see surrounding the headnote on the issue that you're discussing a bunch of other related headnotes that have to do with the same general topic. And sometimes by examining those custom digests and understanding the broader context of the issue that you're dealing with, you can identify new arguments that you wouldn't have if you were just narrowly focused through keyword searching on finding the cases that benefit you the most. What if you're encountering a totally new area of law? Where do you start? I do start at Google sometimes just to say, I don't know anything about this area. I mean, when it's a new area, I agree with you. If it's something that you're just unfamiliar with, then obviously you can go to secondary sources, whether on Google or you know, Amjur, CJA, Law Review Articles, Practice Pointer Articles, Missouri Practice, wherever you want to look at that's going to give you some of that baseline understanding you need to contextualize the issue you're dealing with. If you're dealing with a novel issue in the sense that, you know, it has not yet been ruled on by a court, well, now you've got to start thinking outside the box and you've got to start saying, okay, what analogies can I draw to other areas of law? Or what are the concerns or analogs the court might have in considering an issue like this? And then you've got to build expertise on that if it's not something that you're deeply familiar with. So there's no substitute there for just rolling up your sleeves and figuring it out. But yeah, I wasn't trying to rag on Google, Eric. I mean, like you can definitely Google when you start, but that's no substitute for the ultimate deep research that you need in order to be persuasive. And you'd be amazed how often when you do that, you are actually able to identify arguments and issues that 
you know, your predecessors in similar cases have made that might not have occurred to you automatically, but which actually might be issues that you could raise in your own case. Yeah. And sometimes you've got to start with a broad-based Google search to understand what you're reading when you're reading those cases, you know, and understanding, well, what's the holding? What's the legal principle? Why was the case decided this way? How does the case apply to my facts? So sometimes you need that broad-based understanding before you do the deep dive that Rich spoke of. Kind of another tip I've got on researching is, you know, don't just read the case, but read the cases cited in those cases that are pulled. And if you've got something that is maybe against your point, boy, look at the briefs. You know, those are all online now. And look at what was argued in that other appellate decision. And maybe the same argument that you're raising was not raised in the briefing and say, well, this case wasn't decided on that point, or this is what was factually different than the case we've got before the court now. Yeah, definitely uh, use the advantage of other people's prior work, not just the briefs, I will, if there's a case that I think is specifically important or might be controlling on an issue, I will go back and listen to the oral argument in that case. Absolutely. I think that's valuable for a couple of reasons. One, it shows you what judges are going to be concerned about when you're standing out there talking about it. Secondly, good lawyers at the oral argument stage really have gotten down to the meat of the issue. And they really understand it at a point where they know, okay, this is what it really comes down to. And that's what we're talking about. And if you can get that sense from some you know, predecessor of yours prior work on it, at the outset of your case, it's going to make you more effective in developing your appellate strategy for putting your brief together as well as preparing for your oral argument. We've already alluded to the need to have a somewhat unwieldy beginning that turns into a succinct, concise brief. Could you describe your final review stage of brief writing? I alluded to this a little bit before. I want everything to look very consistent in terms of citations. I want to get rid of all unnecessary words. You know, if I can use one word that captures a fuller meaning than using four words, I'm going to do it. Get rid of the, you know, extras whenever you can and change your sentence structure. I like to shorten up quotes in my cases by paraphrasing things. So revising and shortening quotes with the use of ellipses, I think, is important when possible. I think you need to make sure that your citations and you're using the correct symbols and watch out for, you know, how Westlaw cites it versus how it should be properly cited is important too. But these are all really kind of luxuries that you need to set time for so that you can make that brief that you file as good looking and final as possible. And that sometimes means reserving an entire day just to do that. I think neatness counts. I think you want it to look like a very finished professional product. And to do that, you've got to proofread it. You've got to have somebody else proofread it in your office. And prior to that proofreading stage, hopefully you've had somebody read it for readability and understandability purposes. I laugh because I so often write the last paragraph of my brief. And then I say, this should have been the first paragraph. I lift it back up because I finally understand it. I finally crystallized it. Well, that's a wrap on our second episode on our Appellate Law Roundtable. Thank you both for joining us. Joan Lockwood of Gray Ritter Graham, Rich Finneran of Brian Cave Layton and Paisner. Thank you both for being here with us for two episodes. Rich and Joan, thank you so much. I enjoyed everything you had to say. Good stuff. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for having us. All right. That's been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. I'm John Simon. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law and tune into other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom and Results Don't Lie. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.